Hey everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be one of your hosts today. And joining me here in a few minutes or a few seconds will be Tanner. First, I want to say how awesome it is that this is our second episode of season four. Probably never thought that we'd be this dedicated to it when we started it, but that's pretty cool. And next, I'd like to do a couple Patreon shoutouts. A big thanks to Sean, Jamie, Thomas, and Reborn Turnip 67. Hope you guys are enjoying the back catalog of bonus material. Um, and we are still working on some cool new things. I promise we are. It, uh, you guys have joined at a hectic time, and we uh, really appreciate that. This is probably not our most prolific period, but we are going to be getting right back into it. With that stuff out of the way, I'll go ahead and bring in Tanner. And uh, before we get started, I guess we'll say we got kind of a rare treat. We uh, we got to actually spend time together in person recently. Not for the best reasons, but uh, as some people who follow us on social media might be aware, uh, our grandmother, uh, Shirley Taylor, she passed away just, uh, I guess, a little over a week ago at this point, maybe. I drove to Ohio and then we drove from Ohio to North Carolina together, spent some time there. It was a it was a hectic trip. It was a lot of a lot of a lot of time in the car, kind of a whirlwind of seeing everyone and seeing a lot of people that we haven't seen in 20 or 30 years. Yeah, there was a lot of the uh, I haven't seen you since you were this tall, especially um, for you, because I know it'd been a while since you had been back. But um, yeah, it's always great to see family and everything, and uh, you know, it does kind of suck that as you get older, this tends to be the only reason that it happens. But um, it was a really good time. I actually did have a lot of fun uh, seeing family and reminiscing with some some cousins and stuff, mm-hmm. and a really fun time remembering our grandma, who was a pretty cool lady. It was a great memorial service. I linked to that on my on my Instagram and twitter you can watch the service i don't know if you need a facebook account to actually use the facebook link but i made like a a quick throwaway but yeah so that that was a, a big thing that we've been up to one reason we weren't you know getting stuff recorded or edited this past week yeah that that's kind of what's been going on it's been a lot with the holidays and either dealing with some of that and and all those kind of things so it's just been a busy time but hopefully things are settling down and we'll be getting back in a, a in a rhythm here, and uh, we'll get going. What else have you done? Well, last night, I actually went and saw Beetlejuice, the musical, in uh, Cincinnati. That was actually really cool. Oh, really? Because the notes say Beetlejuicy. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, I added an I in there. Uh, it was really good, though. It was, it's always fun to go, you know, like downtown Cincinnati, go to the Aronoff Center. It's a really nice venue and everything. That was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a really good show. Pretty irreverent and hilarious. It, uh, if you have a chance to see it, definitely go do it. Is the Beetlejuice musical is that new or is yeah, that relatively? That I think like I think it was like twenty sixteen seventeen is probably when it came out. It was probably the most fun musical I've ever seen. I don't know that I would say it was like the best or whatever, however you want to quantify it, but it was probably the most fun. I have a very selective interest in musicals. I wouldn't say I like musicals as a genre, but there's a lot of musicals that I really, really do like. Yeah, I'm trying to like appreciate it more for just appreciating it, but yeah, I'm pretty selective as well. Like in the heights, I'm good. 
don't need it. I'm sure it's wonderful. I like Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. I like Hamilton. I know that's not cool. But but not too much, like some people. No, I love it. <laughs> I like the Heathers musical that they made. Yeah, the next one I want to see is Six. Oh, yeah, that's supposed to be really good. Which is actually coming to Cincinnati soon, so maybe I will be able to see it. Of course, Jesus Christ Superstar, my favorite musical. Absolutely, that's always a good one. Wicked, I did actually get to see Wicked one time for free, actually, because the I think like the band and orchestra at my high school was going and they had like extra tickets. And so I got to go see Wicked. Nice. I would uh, I would go see that. I have not seen Wicked, but I'm familiar with some of the music. For me, not a lot of catchy tunes in Wicked. I mean, Defying Gravity is kind of it, right? Yeah, not a lot of them stuck with me. We're going to get hate mail from people. Actually, popular is a good song from from that one. Oh, too. yeah, so I forgot. Yeah, that, send more hate mail to Tanner than me. Not don't send it to me. What else? What else have you been doing? Not musicals. My reading has uh, slumped a little bit the past week or so. I got a little bit done um, during our trip, mostly just listening to podcasts because of all the time spent in the car. I know we had listened to a couple episodes. What of podcast this. did you listen to in the car? <laughs> we had listened to a couple episodes of this, um, but it's one that I've been enjoying for a while. I listened to a lot of the Failure to Launch podcast. I actually got mm-hmm. caught up totally on the Failure to Launch podcast. I actually really enjoyed that when we were when we were listening to that. Yeah, it's a great show. I I really think that if you like our show and you listen to our show, you definitely would enjoy Failure to Launch. Um, it is about all of the disasters and mishaps that went into uh, space exploration, kind of getting us to where we are today. Really great. They naturally have to spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Um, So that's a time period I'm really interested in. But it's just really great. It's just really interesting stuff to hear. It's it's presented kind of in a similar fashion to what we try to do. Um, So yeah, it's just a great listen overall. Very informative, very funny. Um, I really enjoyed it. So definitely check out Failure to Launch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it made the last probably four hours of our trip much more enjoyable. So I think we have a failure of our own to discuss here today. I know they say um, failure is just an opportunity, but what if you didn't listen to that opportunity? Okay. We'll talk about that today. So if I say Pearl Harbor, what do you think of? I think World War II just started. Exactly. World War II just started. Obviously, the name Pearl Harbor conjures up some pretty strong images when discussing nautical disasters. However, May 21st, 1944 might not carry the same weight as December 7th, 1941. What we're going to talk about today is uh, tragic in its own right, and kind of doubly so, because sadly, we don't learn anything. Although smaller in scale, evidence uh, of this disaster is still scattered all around Pearl Harbor, if you know where to look. And until I played on Google Maps, I did not know where to look. Is this something that you discovered in conjunction with your trip to Pearl Harbor? Or uh, No, this was actually recently just playing around on Google Maps one day at work. I was looking at Pearl Harbor and uh, I just noticed some interesting things. So, May 1944 found the waters around Pearl Harbor crowded as preparations were beginning to be made for Operation Forager. The purpose of this operation was to take the Mariana Islands and Palau. 
Overall, this operation was in support of the campaign to retake the Philippines. Taking the Philippines provides a base of operations, and you can begin to be able to strategically bomb Japan and enter Japanese holdings. That's kind of, we're all kind of familiar with like the island hopping campaign and everything. Let's look at Pearl Harbor itself. You know, we, we hear about it a lot. We talk about it a lot if you're into history in World War II. But what does it actually look like? So looking at Pearl Harbor, it's really not a harbor in the way we think of it. There's really three like fingers almost separating the harbor. Three locks, if you will. Loch. Gotta have Sean Connery voice on here. So these three locks are pretty simply named East Lock, Middle Lock, and West Lock. All right. That's what happens when the Navy gets a hold of something right away. Um, so East Lock is what you're going to see when you visit the museum. It's what you cross when you sail out to the Arizona Memorial. Essentially, it's what you think of when you think of visiting Pearl Harbor. This is really what you're talking about. And this is where a lot of the action that day actually happened. That's where Battleship Row is at. It's where a lot of the base infrastructure is and everything. East Lock is what you think of when you think of Pearl Harbor if you're just visiting. The Middle Lock is pretty much straight on from the entrance of the harbor. And today it's actually used as storage for the reserve fleet. So I've seen these in Norfolk and Newport News. You'll just see a bunch of ships kind of anchored in the middle of a harbor or an inlet, and they just sit there. They're- so here by reserve fleet, this is, is this kind of meaning that like there's no intention of these ships ever being used again? Only if there was like a national mobilization. So sort of what we saw with like the um, Iowa class battleships in Desert Storm. I didn't know we used those. Yeah. Yeah. We actually brought a couple of those out of uh, reserve status for that. So basically they're capable, you know, vessels, but we don't want to maintain them right now. So if the need arose, you could relatively quickly have these things operational. Or if we needed to, to send 50 of them to the British. Yes. Yes, that too. Uh, so today, the USS Tarwa and the USS Peleliu are stored in the middle lock, along with various other old vessels. They're both actually part of the Tarwa-class amphibious assault ships. And if you're not sure what those look like, think of like a small aircraft carrier, basically. I looked at a picture of one of these. The first one I saw, it like didn't have really anything good for scale. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just like a regular aircraft carrier. Very much more of like what an escort carrier would have been in World War II. Mm -hmm. This is also interesting. I found out that this is where the Pan Am Trans-Pacific Clippers would land and disembark their passengers when they would fly into Honolulu. So that was actually kind of cool. So is this a like a flying boat? Yeah, yeah. Like their Trans-Pacific flying boats would actually land and um, disembark people. I didn't know that these existed. It'd be cool if it still did. And then Westlock. It's a little more remote and marshy, and a lot of it is actually preserved for wildlife today. Um, Looking around it, it's also, there's some housing. It's kind of just the normal parts of the island. It's where the, just the normal people live. There's a Napa Auto Parts store, things like that. So this was always kind of more of the secluded area. There weren't a lot of, major vessels there during Pearl, like the attacks on Pearl Harbor. So really, 
a lot of this is smaller vessels, things being stored, that kind of thing. It's also where a lot of ammunition gets loaded. There's a weapons depot, things like that. It's good to have as much of that in the same place as possible. Yeah, I mean, at least they put it in a somewhat remote place, as remote as they could. So today's story is going to take place in that West Lock area. As I previously stated, there had been a large buildup in the West Lock due to the staging for Operation Forager. For our purposes, we're going to be focusing on the landing ship tank, or LST. So it's landing ship, comma, tank is, is how it's written out. You're thinking of like a Higgins boat, probably, from like Saving Private Ryan. This is bigger than that. No, not what I was thinking about. <laughs> or from the intro to Medal of Honor, Allied Assault, you name it. That's what I was thinking. Of. So these are significantly bigger. These are ocean-going vessels. So I know that uh, some some of the landing craft, the um, the personnel ones, uh, lived on later in life as the duck boats that we revere mm-hmm. so much today. I have to mm-hmm. wonder, could you make a duck boat out of an LST? That would be a big duck boat. It would be landing ship duck or an LSD. <laughs> um, so the common joke amongst their crew was that LST stood for large, slow target. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, These vessels were 328 feet long. They had a 50-foot beam and speeds of about 12 knots. So yeah, like big enough to be big and slow. Uh, For armament, she had five 40-millimeter gun mounts, six 20-millimeter gun mounts, two 50-caliber machine guns, and four 30-caliber machine guns. So definitely geared towards uh, small arms fire. Not a lot of You're not engaging another vessel with this. All of these guns are geared towards anti-aircraft kind of things, not attack a battleship. Additionally, these vessels could carry up to six of the Higgins boats that we just talked about. And that would total out to around 140 soldiers or Marines. So these are almost kind of the mothership that you deploy from. 140 soldiers and Marines in the six Higgins Higgins boats together. Yes. Okay. The LST would have eight to 10 officers and an additional crew of around 100 sailors. So these people are only responsible for the LST. So in total, you know, you might have 250 people on this vessel if you're carrying a full complement of soldiers and all that. But you have to remember, sometimes these are carrying tanks. Sometimes it's field artillery. It just depends on what they're carrying. It might be an infantry platoon. Uh, The LST is actually viewed as one of the most important shipbuilding projects due to their versatility and the necessity of how we were going to fight the Pacific campaign, we absolutely had to have this type of vessel and a lot of them. Due to this high demand, their construction was approached in a unique way. From the history section of LST393.org, LSTs were a high priority during the war, the second largest shipbuilding initiative in the history of mankind. Before the tests were completed on the LST, construction had already commenced. The LST was built in a variety of cornfield Navy shipyards, in rather unlikely locales, Seneca, Illinois, Evansville and Jeffersonville, Indiana, and Pittsburgh and Ambridge, Pennsylvania. The Navy was forced to modify bridges through a ferry command to bring the LSTs to the oceans. About 670 LSTs were constructed inland. Yeah, I found that really interesting. That's not something that I really knew happened. I know we've talked before about 
destroyers and stuff being built on the Great Lakes, that kind of thing. But it's something altogether different to be building ocean-going vessels in Evansville, Indiana. That is squarely in the middle of the country. What did your grandfather do during the war? Be like, uh, <laughs> he, he was building ships in Illinois. <laughs> yeah. All this background brings us to the afternoon of May 21st, 1944, at birthing area T8 in the West Lock of Pearl Harbor. This is birthing like where you would park a ship, not where you would have a child, right? Uh, correct. This would be a dangerous place to have a child. Suddenly, LST-353, without warning, appears to spontaneously combust. It's the opposite of what you want there. Yeah, that's bad. That is generally a bad day. Quoting from Farm Boy from Oklahoma in the book Saipan, Oral Histories of the Pacific War. There was a terrific explosion, according to Paul E. Cooper, a Marine on board a neighboring LST. Cooper had been ordered to keep the Marines on his LST below decks to protect them from falling debris. But when the second explosion hit, all these men I was trying to keep inside came running through the door at the same time. I got knocked down as they went over the side into the water. The explosion would shower the area with metal fragments and high-octane fuel, and this almost immediately results in the water around the explosion site burning. So really, nowhere safe. The water is not safe. It's, you know, fully inundated with jet fuel, with or not jet fuel, with high-octane fuel, diesel fuel, all kinds of different things, and not to mention a ton of ammunition. Everyone knows that there's a lot of ammunition. Yeah, that would be my, my concern. Uh, so the LSTs at the next birthing area over, which would be T9, almost immediately attempt to flee to the far side of the lock or make their way out of the harbor and put out to sea. However, within three minutes of the initial explosion, a second, more powerful one occurred. William L.C. Johnson, a pharmacist mate on LST-69, had been on the tank deck when the initial explosion occurred. Once he picked himself up, he manned one of the smaller Higgins boats and left LST-69 to search for men in the water. Speaking on the second explosion, Johnson said, It threw equipment, men, and shrapnel all over the harbor, Johnson recalls. I dove into the water and held my hands over my head. So at this point, the crews of the LSTs that are unlucky enough to be near the blast realize that they're in serious trouble. You know, this isn't something it's not an explosion and done like this is becoming a bigger thing so due to the intense heat and flames crews were unable to access the forward lines which kept the vessels tethered to their birthing point witnesses to the disasters witnesses to the disaster report watching crew move further and further aft until they were unable to stay on the vessel and were forced to jump into the fuel-laden water uh, that kind of conjures up that sort of Almost that image of like the falling man, 9-11, that kind of thing of, you know, having to watch these people get pushed further and further and further. And then finally, your only choice is to stay on the burning ship or to jump in the burning water like that. That's a hard choice. Choose which way you want to go somewhat. I guess it's fire both ways. Yeah, I guess this is not not quite as much of a choice, but do you want wet fire or dry fire? Uh, finally, one of the LSTs was able to separate itself from the T8 birthing point. And as she made her way to safety, she was either able to cut the lines of some of the other LSTs moored there, or she accidentally cut them as she fled. Either way, a second LST was able to follow and beach safely about 200 yards away. So you have to keep in mind that these are all clustered together. So if you can unattach yourself, 
you know, you might be able to get somebody else too. But with everyone tied up together, if one of these vessels goes, then there's a really good chance the next one goes. Uh, two others would ev- would shortly follow, and eventually another five LSTs would cut their lines and make an escape. As this is going on, though, there's a third explosion. And actually, many people say this was the largest explosion that took place that day. Flaming debris fell in a 3,000-foot radius, and the blast could be heard from 15 miles away. It was at this point that a new danger became apparent. A burning LST from the T-8 birthing area began to drift to the birthing point T-9, and it lit another LST on fire. So now your problem is you don't have one cluster on fire. You're you're beginning to like light up the next one, essentially. I just imagine like someone, I don't know, stationed at Pearl Harbor who was there for the actual Pearl Harbor attack. Mm-hmm. Are you able to immediately recognize... Is is this another attack? Is this an accident? Either way, it's like a dangerous situation. But still, you've got to think that had to go through people's heads at some point. Well, not only that, like some of these other people are already veterans of previous campaigns. Mm-hmm. Everyone involved with this has to have some PTSD to some degree, right? I guess the other thing to think about here, too, is you might wonder, like, well, how does a drifting vessel catch another one on fire? A lot of these vessels are carrying things like white phosphorus. Mm. I didn't know that we had that then. Comes up pretty frequently in the news right now. That's bad stuff. And it's all being it's all going off indiscriminately. When was that invented? I didn't even know we had that at this point. That's been around a while. Uh, with the situation quickly escalating, another danger was soon apparent. The rescue boats. Quoting again from Farm Boy from Oklahoma. The situation continued to deteriorate. The smoke was so thick, you couldn't see much in any direction, Cooper recalls. LCTs and other small vessels cut through the water, but their skippers had trouble seeing men amidst the smoke and flames. Some of the men in the water, still alive, ended up run over by the boats trying to rescue them, Cooper observed. I mean, this isn't something that's unfamiliar to us, I don't think. Unfortunately... It's dangerous rescuing people from the water, especially with the smoke and explosions and everything that's going on here. That's kind of one of the unfortunate parts of of life saving is that sometimes, you know, you're the cause of the death. Well, and we've seen like in the a situation like the Ocean Ranger, very different, you know, environment. But there's a lot of these stories where the physical distance, you know, to safety is is not really that far. Mm-hmm. where the rescue craft do get within you know a, a matter of feet from rescuing people and that's even when they're not there's not things actively burning and exploding around them and mm-hmm. it's 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 still very challenging to to rescue people when you don't have like the specific equipment that's made specifically for that even thinking even more thinking about like the paisley canal disaster we did in season one mm-hmm. it's it's literally a matter of feet and people just cannot get up the sides of this canal. So yeah, it's it, we we see that a lot on the show of the rescue process itself is never a guarantee. Yeah, and especially with like a landing craft that is not meant to rescue people, that's meant to put people on a beach. That's another parallel with the Ocean Ranger is none of those boats were rescue boats that were trying to to get those people out of the water. So around the time of the third explosion in LCM, or Landing Craft Mechanical, 
with water pumps departed the Westlock and fireboats from Honolulu Harbor departed for the disaster scene. There's so many types of landing craft. There are. So you might be asking, who's coordinating all these efforts? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. That would be Admiral Richmond K. Turner. Hey. Do you recognize that name? I did not. I do not. I, do, I don't know who, who, who this is. Turner is actually the guy who decides to not share the intercepted Japanese diplomatic communications indicating an attack on Pearl Harbor. So it's like his, his guys had intercepted it and just thought that it wasn't that important? Uh, basically, because we had been we had cracked Japanese codes before we mm -hmm. entered World War II. We were reading them. Um, what was that called? Purple. Purple. I knew it was a color. Um, Do you know why I remember that? Why? It's because partially responsible for cracking the purple code was William Friedman, the husband ah. of Elizabeth, who we did yeah. a bonus episode about. Let's go, that's right. Go listen to our bonus episode. <laughs> so he's the guy that decides to not share that information. Uh, you might be asking, did he get in trouble for that? And eh, not really. Throughout the Pacific campaign, he became the Americans' ace planner of amphibious operations. This led to him being promoted throughout the war. Uh, he actually would have commanded the amphibious landing portion of uh, Operation Downfall on the mainland of Japan. He was slated to command that. I'm sure he was excited about that. So not so good with intelligence, but really good at landing guys on beaches. He's not the smartest, but man, this this guy will, will storm any beach. <laughs> That's basically what it was. Um he would also be on the deck of the Missouri when Japan officially surrendered. So he had quite a World War II. Yeah. And he was there when it started. There is a Forrest Gumpness to that. There, there definitely is. Dicking around and not sharing the intercepted codes or the intercepted messages. Um, and then being there when it all wraps up, too. Uh-huh. Uh, he actually had a famous brother as well. Socialist writer John Kenneth Turner. He was actually a guest of Robert La Follette and witnessed Woodrow Wilson's speech when war was officially declared on Germany, marking the American entrance into World War I. And actually, if you remember our Lusitania episode, Robert La Follette was one of only like, I think like sin single digit Congress people who voted against declaring war on Germany. Yeah, I bet those two had some interesting conversations. One of them tried to get us into a war, and one of us tried to keep him out, it almost <laughs> seems like. <laughs> At 4.50 in the afternoon, LST-353, the flashpoint for the disaster, finally sank. However, other vessels around her continued to burn and cook off ammunition. This includes mortar and artillery <laughs> shells. So there's still massive explosions happening. Around this time, the vessel Joseph B. Francis is moored near a large ammo dump near the south end of the West Lock. If you look today on a map of Pearl Harbor... Is there just a big hole here? <laughs> there is something... There is a weapons depot, actually, just north of looks like Iroquois Point. And I'm imagining that's about where this happens, judging off the description that I just read. Pulling up my Pearl Harbor map right now. Uh, so the Joseph B. Francis had been unloading at the time of the disaster and had not been able to leave the dock. Suddenly, a white phosphorus shell landed on her deck and ignited. 
The crew quickly responded and put out the fire, although it would reignite before ultimately being extinguished again, and the Joseph B. Francis was able to escape the area. But this would have potentially resulted in a fourth massive explosion had that ship's crew not reacted so quickly. Well, and that's the terrifying thing with the white phosphorus. It's like seeing it, you know, the clips you see from from Gaza, even after it's like extinguished, it'll reignite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, white phosphorus is truly nasty stuff. And using it on dense civilian populations is objectively a war crime. Uh, fortunately, this was in an ammo depot in a nature reserve, so not densely mm-hmm. populated. Good to go. Do it. And we were using it on ourselves. <laughs> uh, with one disaster avoided near the ammunition dump, another one loomed on the horizon. LSTs 43, 179, and 69 were burning halts with ammunition still cooking off on board. These derelict vessels were being carried by the current directly towards the south shore near the <laughs> same ammunition dump. <laughs> Fortunately, these vessels came to rest about 500 feet offshore from said ammo dump. So it's just one thing after another of just really wanting that fourth explosion. This is probably where one of the white phosphorus shells came from that landed on the other ship. Uh, As the evening wore on, things had seemingly calmed down by 10 p.m. when LST-39 caught fire again. This was followed by LST-480 reigniting at 1.30 in the morning and burning through the early hours. By 8 a.m. on the morning of the 22nd, all the fires had been contained or eliminated. That has to be the worst part is just sitting around and like telling yourself, like, is it over? Is it over? This would be very funny if if so many people didn't die. If we even knew how many people died. There's a tragicomic uh, sense to just the fact that they can't they can't actually deal with this problem. And it just. Yeah, I feel like we say it a lot, but there's like the Coen brothers could do this movie. (laughs) Uh, So let's look at some of the aftermath. One of the primary mitigating factors in this incident, as far as death toll, is that two-thirds of the crews manning the vessels were on shore leave when it happened. This has been a bit of a double-edged sword, as generally, the more experienced men were the ones that were on leave. But it did limit the overall number of people exposed to the danger. So sort of that calculus of more experience, maybe we end it sooner. But also, if there's a big explosion, it doesn't matter how much experience you have. Who's the guy you're going to call when a, a, a spark of white phosphorus lands on your stack of mortar rounds? Right, yeah. You you lose, I guess, at that point, right? (laughs) You got your white phosphorus in my mortar rounds. You got your mortar rounds in my white phosphorus. So, naval historian Samuel Elliott Morrison put the death toll at 163, with 396 suffering injuries. Initial reports had been as low as 27 dead with 100 missing, but this was always going to be revised up. Like six landing craft just explode and being like eh, 27, 20, 25, 30, something like that. In 2005, the magazine C Classics would claim that 392 were lost in the disaster. By their math, 163 were sailors and 229 were Marines. I couldn't find this article, but I would be interested to see their methods and their research and to see why there's such a variance from the official number. I feel like if that many people were missing, someone would be at home being like, where's my son? 
I tried to find this article as well using all of like the databases and 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 whatnot. Mm-hmm. And the the only way I could find to possibly read this article was I found someone selling a physical copy of that magazine on eBay. <laughs> but it wouldn't have gotten here in time. Darn. Uh, one of the reasons for so much mystery around the total number is that with the departure for the Marianas Islands only a few days away, there was not much time to verify this information. Like, this was not going to delay this operation. In some cases, there's just no remains to find. And you move on. You keep going because you have to, you have islands to invade. You don't have a lot of time to try to piece it together. Uh, in terms of equipment lost, there were six LSTs, three LCTs, 17 amphibious tractors, eight howitzers, and another two LSTs that were damaged and could not be used in Operation Forager. With this, also, some of these numbers are probably a little nebulous. I doubt that that they're, you know, plus or minus a howitzer, right? So although there had been significant losses, the Westlake disaster did not result in any delay to operations in the Pacific. Reserve LSTs were deployed, and Paul Cooper soon found himself surveying a familiar scene thousands of miles from Pearl Harbor. Landing craft turned upside down on the reef. All sorts of vehicles and equipment on fire. The dead and wounded were everywhere. It has to be kind of surreal, almost, that you just went through this insane experience in mm-hmm. you know what was supposed to be friendly territory. And then you basically get to go relive it after crossing the Pacific Ocean. That has to be pretty intense. With people actively like shooting at you. Yeah, like it just gets worse from there. So what was the cause? Rear Admiral John F. Shafroff Jr. headed the naval inquiry about the incident, which began May 23rd. Initially, there were fears that the explosion was the result of a Japanese submarine attack. This is not entirely crazy to think, considering that, what should I call I don't want to say midget sub, but I feel like when I say mini submarines, like then it sounds like mini, the number of. I just feel like midget isn't a word that should be used now, right? I might look up the actual. Midget submarine is any submarine under 150 tons. There's no way it's still called that. Japanese midget submarine. I'm going with it. It's the type A. Midget submarine woke name. All right, got nothing. All right, we're, we're going for it. Uh, This is not entirely crazy to think, considering that Japanese midget submarines, the Type A class. That's what they're called. That's just (laughs) what they're called. Uh, They had actually deployed during the attacks on Pearl Harbor. And one of them, I think at least one of them had made it into the harbor. Obviously, a lot of people are going to reflex back to that day because no matter what, this is going to remind them of the attacks. So during the course of the inquiry... The executive officer of LST-353, the first ship to explode, testified that in the moment prior to the explosion, Army dock workers were unloading mortar rounds from an LCT and placing them on the deck of his ship. It also became apparent that the dock workers had not been given proper instruction in how to handle this type of ammunition. Another hazard present were 80 gallons of fuel that were stacked within 15 feet of the unloading (laughs) operation. It was determined that a mortar round had exploded while being unloaded onto LST-353. Unfortunately, the exact cause could not be determined, due to anyone being in the immediate area dying in the explosion. 
Yeah, I imagine so. Uh, two theories were put forward. One being the accidental dropping of a mortar being unloaded onto LST-353. Or the ignition of gasoline vapors from the high-octane fuel being stored on the deck of LST-353. The ignition source would have likely been a cigarette or shipboard welding. Smoking was banned while doing this kind of work, and although welding had been going on earlier in the day, no one should have been doing that while this process was going on. Honestly, for the time, I'm... A little surprised they actually have a rule. Kind of like 50% surprised that there was even a rule against smoking when handling these mortar rounds. And uh, I, I think it was purely because like ammo and gas were rationed. So it's like, we can't waste this. Everything's woke now. You can't smoke next to the mortar rounds anymore. It was also suggested that inexperienced crews played a role in the tragedy. Lieutenant Commander Joseph B. Hoyt, commander of LST Group 39, Flotilla 13, was critical of many crews for abandoning ship early and allowing the flaming hulks to drift. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> you will stay on your flaming hulk. Although various crews were called out for their actions, the extreme conditions were cited as mitigating factors. At the conclusion of the investigation, it was decided that no court-martial would be issued. Additionally, it was decided that the loading of fuel and ammunition aboard closely moored vessels would continue due to conditions in the war and the geography of Pearl Harbor. Basically, nothing changed. In the immediate aftermath, there was, of course, a press blackout. Four days after the event, there was a brief statement put out by the Navy acknowledging that an event had caused a loss of life, but it was vague. The inquiry was marked top secret, and survivors were not allowed to write letters home discussing the events. And the events that happened that day would actually remain classified until 1960. I mean, from an operational security perspective, I guess you don't want a bunch of guys writing home about, hey, all of this big troop and ammunition buildup. Uh-huh. There, there was a problem. Yeah, it's very interesting um, nowadays how you really can't do this. Like, this would be on Twitter and on TikTok as it's happening. That would be why he dropped the mortar round is because he had his other he had his phone in his other hand. Uh-huh. TikToking. These kids in their and their TikToks. Not a phone in sight right here, just people, you know, enjoying enjoying being with themselves. But probably a cigarette. But probably a cigarette. Two months later, the Navy would be faced with a similar tragedy when the munition ship EA Bryan exploded at Port Chicago, California. But that's a story for another episode. In the months following the Westlock disaster, the Navy worked to salvage and clear the area of sunken vessels. One of the ones that remained was LST-480. And this is actually what inspired me to do the episode today. I was playing around on Google Maps when I noticed that wreck, and I was surprised to learn about it, as it was not something I was familiar with even after visiting Pearl Harbor last year. Do they not talk about it there? They keep that pretty hushed up now? I never saw anything acknowledging this. And again, granted, I was in the East Lock, and this happens in the West Lock, but you still kind of think that maybe you could carve out just a little something in that museum for these guys. This is what our show gives you. This is the stuff that they don't want you to know. Maybe now if I went, I would notice something. But it's def- there's nothing obvious when you're there, you know, talking about this that I saw. Yeah, as I was, this is the second episode I've done because I've been scrolling Google Maps. The, the Dead Fleet in Philly was the other one. 
you ask about it and you're you're gently escorted out of Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to need you to step off the property. So, unidentified victims of the disaster were buried at the National Cemetery of the Pacific and labeled merely unknown. This would be changed to unknown Westlock disaster 21 May 1944 in the year 2000. So it took until the year 2000. Wow. To really have anything acknowledged that anyone that was unidentified was even attributed to this. It's pretty crazy that some of this stuff isn't as old as it seems. World War II seems like a long ways away. And you know, we still have things happening relatively recently with, with evidence coming to light and, and all that. Another thing I will say, I know I mentioned the um, National Cemetery of the Pacific. That was one of the places that I we I visited that I wasn't expecting to be as engrossing as it was. I've been to Arlington National Cemetery, and it it had that kind of feel to it. Like regardless of your thoughts on how a lot of why a lot of those people might be there, like you you can still tell when you're in kind of a hollowed place. And it was it was a pretty intense experience that. You know, being in a crater, basically, that's a graveyard is is pretty intense. It was a absolutely beautiful place. I don't think I knew that this place existed. Yeah, it's, I mean, essentially, I guess, kind of the Arlington of the Pacific, at least for World War II. But I know a lot of, I think a lot of famous people are actually buried there. It's this, I was surprised to see this, that I hadn't heard about this before, um, especially after just being there. I was a little surprised that, you know, this huge tragic event you know took place and it's not something we really talk about i feel like the port chicago disaster is a little bit more well known than this one uh probably because it couldn't be covered up quite as easily i mean with hawaii you at least kind of have the seclusion of an island in the middle of the pacific to cover it up yeah i thought this was a really interesting story i love being able to look at something on a map and know why it's there kind of like you said i'm, I'm- surprised that i'd never heard of this but then again i don't i don't typically read as much about world war ii i'm trying to fix that i did i did uh order ian toll's pacific war trilogy i'm i'm morphing into a dad despite not having any children but <laughs> this is a good episode to get back to things trying to get back to some some normalcy with our recording schedule definitely informative didn't know anything about this uh learned a lot don't want to get onto a landing craft I was leery of them after the duck boat episodes, and this is cementing it for me. Yeah, I think what we've learned from this podcast is Roro Ferry's bad and any sort of landing craft also Although, a death trap. But what is a landing craft but a Roro Ferry? In this case, though, I guess it really wouldn't have mattered what kind of boat it was. This is true. No, that was a solid uh, a solid episode to kind of get back into the swing of things. Felt good writing that one. It felt good doing this one. So looking forward to getting back at it and having a little normalcy. Next week, we're going back somewhere we love to go. Russia. Hell yeah. If it's time to try to find-